0: Hello, welcome to the NHSR podcast. Uh, I do not give them episode numbers, as I said previously, because they come out in a funny order. Um, we are recording today on the 1st of December, 2023. My name is Chris Bealy, I'm head of data science at the Strategy Unit. And if you just stumbled upon this podcast and you don't know what NHSR is, NHSR is a community of um, health and social care analysts in um, the United Kingdom who use mainly R, hence the name, but we're also very friendly towards other languages, such as Python, and in fact, we're very great friends with our sister organization, NHS Pycom, and we like to um, use open source tools, we like to release our code as open source, and we like to generally do cool analytic things using open source malarkey. So I have as a guest uh, today on the podcast, uh, Matt, can you introduce yourself, please, Matt?
1: Yep, hello, Matt Dray here um lovely to to be here and uh, very excited to be starting in the nhs recently too
0: excellent thanks matt yeah so i'm just going to start with a bit of a disclaimer it's a bit strange because matt has actually just joined the team um so it does feel like i'm just sticking my team on the podcast which is which is not how it happened uh matt actually was scheduled to record a podcast he's the only person who's ever written an email to us actually so that was partly why he got invited um so if you do want to send the podcast an email it's nhs.rcommunity at nhs.net i will put that also in the show notes um but yeah so matt has done lots of interesting things with art as we're going to talk about later um so we did intro- invite him on the podcast some time ago um and the podcast was scheduled on the exact day that he had a job interview with us and i was much happier to give him the job interview than i was to have him on the podcast so that's what we did and he got the job and now he's here um but in the interests of being impartial i'm not going to talk about the team and how great and fantastic and wonderful we are and what great work we're doing because that doesn't seem very fair uh we're going to talk about all the other stuff that matt's been doing i mean he's only just got here um so we haven't really got amazing tales to tell just yet about all this kind of thing anyway right so with the disclaimer over um i will now kick off so matt do you want to just start off just because you you used to be a civil servant and you've moved around different places quite a bit so I want to just kind of tell us kind of where you've been and, and how you ended up where you are now
1: yeah, of course. So uh, I spent almost a decade, very close to a decade in civil service. Um, that started off by entering through the uh, FAST stream, um, and that was into DEFRA, that's Environment, Food, Rural Affairs. Then a little stint in the Department for Education, uh, and then popped across to uh, Government Digital Service, then onto the Cabinet Office. Uh, and then finally into UK Health Security Agency. Um, and most of that time has been as a data scientist or analyst. Um, and then a little bit of experience before all of that, um, doing a master's and a PhD in ecology and entomology, which is the study of insects. I, can't, I don't know that there's too many insect specialists in the civil service, but that's one of my proud claims to fame.
0: Well, interestingly, actually, so we had um, Dan Chalk on the podcast a little while ago. If you heard that one. And I'm pretty sure that his PhD is in bees.
1: Aha! Uh-huh. Well, then we'll have to form some kind of uh, subgroup. I think some special yeah. interest group. <laughs>
0: so, what was it? What was yours? Like a species of insect, or was it a bit more general than that?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, the masters was um, in the control of Japanese knotweed, which is like a really invasive weed, uh, and we were looking at a, a certain type of insect that, that consumes it to try and control it.
0: Cool. I mean, I absolutely, yeah, I really love hearing about where data scientists have come from. Because, so Andreas, who's been on the podcast, actually, um, who did some text mining work with us some time ago, he has a PhD in cows. We don't really know what that means, but it's something to do. And he, yeah, environmental science, I think, is kind of a, does seem to to kind of bleed into, I guess, well, as Dan was saying, there's a lot of, I think, modelling the behaviour of bees is very complicated, basically. So whenever you've got a very complicated data set, um, my PhD was in sort of well, psychopathy and personality disorder. Um, but that was a lot of regression modelling, basically. Um, anyway, yeah. So, Dave um, civil service move around a lot, don't they? So, we were just saying this before we press record. So, what's that like? I mean, I think you know I've been very stable in my. Is it is it fun to mm. move around or can it be quite disruptive? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I think it's a positive thing on the whole because it means that you get a lot of experience moving around to different places. Um, And that's good for you as an individual learning lots of different things, but also probably good for the civil service as a whole. Um, It can be a bit challenging just because um, I think, as we all know, the civil service can be a little bit siloed, which means that uh, actually transferring from one place to another can be quite a culture change. Um, But I think on the whole, if you also want to be progressing through the civil service, um, career-wise, uh, then you kind of have to kind of take a, take a step into a different, um, different department or agency to do that. So I think a lot of people move around on that basis.
0: Yeah, I mean, having said all that, I've heard people say in the past that in terms of professional development for the NHS, because the problem we have in the NHS, the civil service is good because it's just this big monolithic thing that you can just move around freely inside it, can't you? But the NHS, as you know, is just these well, Ben Goldacre describes it very well. He says it's not, what does he say, it's not a mammoth, it's a It's a, a shoal. Um, and so actually moving around, so I've just come to this job last year, but I've actually, I was in the same trust for 20 years. And I did loads of things in that time. I started on the wards and I ended up doing all sorts of weird computers. Um, but I just kind of naturally kind of, I wouldn't even say work my way up because I wasn't in the same place, but I worked my way around, if you like. Um Doing different so for example I've never seen an acute data set in my life because I didn't work in a trust that did acute data so I have only really learned quite a narrow slice of the NHS and that in some ways I think that probably is a weakness
1: yeah I'd say for um, for the civil service there's also this kind of idea that um, when you are working as an analyst it's quite it's quite general these days so theres it's kind of less compartmentalization between being say an economist a data scientist Um, and so on. Um, And so it's kind of like a a kind of wider pool in some ways. So you're sort of encouraged to kind of understand kind of a breadth of um, work with data. And for exactly as you've just said, actually, it's good to have people who are kind of specialists and can really delve down deep into certain topics or have experience of certain data sets or approaches. But actually, I think the focus is much more switching to, yeah, trying to get people um, more knowledgeable about a wider range of things, um, and that creates a much easier, again, a much easier space for people to move around in. But yeah, maybe there's some specialism lost.
0: And speaking of moving around the civil service, that's a nice segue into um, your history with rap, because I understand you were you was there at the sort of the at the sort of the early gigs, if you like, of the rap. So do you want to just tell us kind of how you've seen that develop over time?
1: Yeah, so the first thing to say is that I know that um, NHS uh, RAP, uh, the website, uh, has a section now called The History of RAP, which is worth checking out. That was put together by Sam Hollings. And uh, yeah, as you say, um, I I was friends with the the guy, Matt Upson, who kind of came up with the idea as part of government digital service. Uh, And then we at GDS kind of took that forward. And there was a rather awkward moment where there were three Matt Upson Gregory and myself all working on it at the same time. Uh, and also people like uh, Duncan Garmentsway, um, who should be familiar to a number of uh, our listeners. He, he made the tidy Excel package um, and unpivoted. Uh, and in those kind of early days, uh, yeah, there was a, a great example that came out of DCMS um, sort of first wrap, if you like, um, that was put into action. Uh, and then from there, it's just, yeah, it's really taken off. It's become so much more, um, uh, mainstream, I guess. And part of that has just been the incredible work of uh, teams like GDS and ONS to kind of spread the word. Um, but actually, you know, it it kind of, as Sam put it, it's kind of gone mainstream as a result of things like the Goldacre Review, um, as a result of a kind of cross-government wrap um, strategy. And now we're seeing that, um, you know, it's, it's, its tendrils are getting right out across not just The government, not just the public sector, but we're hearing about it being used across the world, actually. So there's a guy called Bruno Rodriguez, who people may be familiar with who's uh, written a great book on rap um, and uses it um, in the uh, Luxembourg uh, public sector, uh, which, is, which is wild. It's gone from sort of one sort of seed idea in about 2017 to something that feels like it's going much more global. Um, but at least within um, civil service and public sector, um, so many more departments, agencies and so on are creating their own strategies and plans as well um and so it's sort of as you say it's kind of odd being there at the sort of the inception point sort of seeing this thing take off and then just grow and grow and grow and now it's it's just it's common parlance i think if you say rap to anyone across uh, um across government or public sector who's involved in analysis they'll know exactly what you're talking about so that's wild that's that's in the case of you know 5 6 years it's gone from barely anything right through to something that's embedded in a lot of teams it's it's fantastic.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, I think, as you say, it is it is widely in parlance, isn't it? Which is good. And it is widely recognised, I think, as being really, really important. Um, just to play the kind of miserable devil's advocate for a moment, though, I think we're at a point now where it's widely acknowledged as being a good thing. And I think a lot of the visible activity that you see. I think that's the, that's the thing. I don't know if it's just the NHS. I guess not. I've never really worked anywhere else. But it feels sometimes like there's loads, there are some sort of high profile teams that do all the right things and they get a lot of kind of, you know, um, what's the word, kind of attention and they they promulgate what they're doing and that's really positive. But I think there's this huge kind of hidden layer. I would sort of call it the, there must be a proper word for this, but basically it's like an iceberg. There's this enormous unseen bit um, that cool. is just still an Excel factory um, and talking to people um, sort of out and about i'm often struck by the fact that um it's one of the it's one of those situations where you sort of win the argument but then things don't really change and then it's, it's hard to know from from my vantage point it's hard to know where to go once it's a bit like winning the argument with a child really you know you can you can beat your nine-year-old in an argument it's not that difficult but they don't really care that you've run and it it, it doesn't you know it doesn't really change when bedtime actually is in practice
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think there's a few things to say to that. The first one is, yeah, getting the kind of buy-in of management has been, I think, tricky over time. I think writing these strategies has helped to kind of uh, get managers, senior managers, to then allow space for their teams to be able to learn what they need to learn. And that is a barrier in itself, as you mentioned. um, There's an awful lot of work going on in things like Excel, lots of copy-pasting, point-clicking. And it's not... You know so straightforward to just overnight know how to use you know open source version control or get to grips with r or python straight away and so i think a big part of making that easier is uh, a number of different organizations have their own um kind of frameworks right they go through maybe a, a kind of bronze silver gold a kind of iterative approach to building up to what might be you know a premier top class rap acknowledging that along the way there are small things you can do to just you know just help out here and there to improve and make things more reproducible so I think that's been helpful Um, and then also I think there's a a layer that we miss out a little bit on which is um, people who need to get work done very quickly very urgently don't have the time necessarily to sit down and you know get in it and then use R N to set up, uh, you know, all the dependencies and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so sorry, there's... I talked talk to
0: me about RM this week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know you're a big fan. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I think there's more we could be doing to kind of uh, get into those, those pockets where people need to get stuff done quickly, but we can get them doing it in a way which is much more reproducible rather than get stuck on someone's computer for the rest of time. We forget we've done it and have to redo it again in future.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, I must admit, I've been working too fast actually recently, and I've been cutting some corners. Um, I think the other problem with the NHS is that, um, again, because it's a, it's not a mammoth, it's a, it's a it's a show. And I guess, again, I, I guess this isn't a thing in the civil servant service. These arguments about installing R and Python are had in every single organisation in the entire country. There were still NHS organisations. In fact, I've spoken to two recently where. They're not allowed to install R on their computers. And in some cases, I've seen where people will do unsafe things. They will do things that are directly in contravention of IT policies that they should not be doing, which I'm not saying they should do those things, but they are doing it purely because, purely out of frustration that they're not able to use the software on the equipment that they've actually been given for their task.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's exactly it, right? You're, you're only going to encourage bad habits if you don't allow this sort of thing. People will find a way, right? Um, and it's sort of hard to know how to get around that in some cases. Um, in other ways, we can be doing more uh, in terms of, you know, producing kind of... Um, I don't know, things like um, return on investment for um, installing R or something. I think sometimes it's a case of just knowing the thing is safe and that it can bring benefits. And so maybe we can be doing more in that space. And I suppose long-term as well, I'm looking at things like um, WASM for R. So being able to run R in the browser, for example, as a way to at least kind of get people using it safely on a machine. Um, Okay, maybe not fully featured, but like as a start, um, and maybe there's a bright future in that, but that's, I mean, we should, we should sort out the problem at source, which is making sure that IT teams and others, uh, allow this because otherwise the negative, uh, net impact can be so much greater, leaking secrets or data or whatever it may be, which we don't want. So yeah, we've got to be, we've got to be getting into that space a little bit more, I think.
0: Yeah. And people write business cases about this stuff as well. And mm. I would say the same thing, which is, well, you don't write a business case for your chair, do you? Like you don't have to have <laughs> a business case for every single thing in your entire workplace. Um, Anyway, and, you know, R is free, whereas chairs are not free. So if, any, if anything, should have a business case, it's a chair, in my opinion. Um, anyway, moving on from me being a curmudgeon about the NHS, um, do you want to just, you've just joined, so you maybe don't even have a very well-formed answer to it, but I'm just interested, what are your sort of early impressions, just join the NHS, what's your uh, initial impression of just kind of how it all fits together? Yeah,
1: yeah, so um, I think we've spoken already as well about this, but um, the sort of scale and scope of the NHS as a kind of, structural thing is quite intimidating um there's so many kind of small units and kind of geographical areas that are doing their own thing and so on and so on so part of me is thinking like well how do we how do we reach them how do we make sure that everyone is uh you know uh able to learn from from what we might be um trying to uh trying to help them with um but also Again, the civil service having these sort of very discrete kind of departments is kind of easy to to sort of visualize. And there's already, you know, things like, you know, cross government slack and so on that make it very easy to communicate across those boundaries. But for me, there's a sort of fuzziness to the NHS, which I think um, is something that other people experience too. Um, And uh, I've been sent a few kind of maps and I've been sent a few uh, videos and things. So hopefully that will become slightly more clear um, but yeah, I, I want to make sure that what we do can be impactful for for, for everyone within the NHS, but you've got to know where they are uh, in the first place, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, the thing that's still really, I mean, obviously, I've I got to grips a little bit, but I think the thing that I forget most often, well, firstly, obviously, it's not just NHS, it's social care in terms of what's important to us. So that, and that's something we've really struggled to get enough people involved. I think some of our, you know, some of the comms that we use. So if you look at the Health and Care Analytics Conference, you know there weren't enough papers from social care, and there weren't enough people there from social care, and I think that's partly the way that we're kind of communicating and presenting it. Um, but, no, but the other thing, of course, is it's is devolved, so it's you know a lot of the stuff that I think of being the BNHS is really just England, and I think getting a head round the difference between what you're looking at, but obviously, there are similar, lots of similarities, so. Yeah, I very commonly trip over that, and I don't know if I'm ever going to quite get to grips with it, really. Um, but it's really important for us, I think, as NHSR at least, and as, as just as people in the NHS, to kind of think about the nations and what they're up to and the differences. Yeah, for sure. I think that's
1: something I experienced a bit in the civil service as well. You know, things like um, I don't know, education quite often was was England focused. Um, and making sure that everyone was kind of learning from each other was really important. Um, we definitely don't want to be kind of reinventing the wheel on um, so many things, like whether that's teaching or tools, software that we've made. But we also don't want people, um, you know, being left out in the cold. Um, it's it's not really um, something we want to do to be able to, you know, massively improve England and sort of not share that that, that kind of information or that that tech or whatever it may be. So yeah, that's really important.
0: Right, so that's all, we've talked about the kind of organizations and stuff, let's talk about nerd stuff now, so let's let's move Mm -hmm. on, this is the nerd bit of the podcast now. Um, So, one of the, let's just start, I mean, I I, I always feel bad talking about this, but I I do think it's it's an old chestnut, but I do think it's it's an old chestnut because it's it's interesting. So you obviously did a talk at the NHSR conference um, called Base Slaps. Um, I'm very interested in the difference between base and tidyverse and the reasons why people use them and people who are bilingual and And all this kind of thing. So do you want to just talk about kind of what's your why did you present that talk and what's your kind of take on the whole base thing at the moment?
1: Yeah. So um, originally when I learned R, which was a long time ago, like uh, 2010, 2009, whatever, something like that, um, I was taught with uh, a big blue R book by a guy called Mick Crawley, who was one of uh, one of the lecturers where I was studying. And uh, this is a big it's a big, thick book and uh, it's an awful lot of stats and what have you in there but also um lots of like really esoteric stuff since then i've sort of steadily done more and more Tigiverse as the posit team has kind of grown and expanded its empire um and to be honest there's a certain nostalgia factor for me i think um looking back on what i'd learned so long ago um and i, I said the word esoteric there because sometimes it really is like the, the way in which you do things can be quite Um, obfuscated or like not obvious in a way that Tinyverse seeks to overcome, right. Um, But over time, um, yeah, I've had this kind of hankering to sort of um, get back to trying to work without dependencies. Uh, And part of that is, you know, to try and protect my work in future from uh, becoming out of date and things breaking. Um, but also because sometimes actually there is elegance uh, in that code and that base code compared to what you might get for, for a tidyverse um, uh, kind of solution, right? Sometimes it takes 100 lines where you might only need 20 or something. And that's not the be all and end all of, uh, of, of using R and doing analysis. Um, but there's a certain joy, I think, in in doing that, Um And also um, from the perspective of things like, yeah, writing packages, which is something I've spent some time doing over the last few years, it just makes your life so much simpler to know that you won't have to, um, you know, make sure that your users are using this particular version of that particular software and so on. So as I say, partly it's in the sales, I think, think. partly it's for fun um, and partly it's for making sure that, you know, dependencies are managed and that we have some sustainability in the tools that we create.
0: I love that you said nostalgic. That's pretty You know, you're getting old, aren't you? When you start getting nostalgic about like ways that you used to write code. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yes, indeed. Um, just talk about elegance. Like, what's the? You, I, I sort of see what you mean, but just just talk about kind of why why you think that's important. Elegance in code.
1: Yeah. So, tidyverse, of course, is great because. It's very readable, right? Lots of verbs, very kind of SQL-like, I suppose. Um, but sometimes that involves things like, okay, well, take this thing and then group by this other thing, and then do the thing across those things, and then don't forget to ungroup and and so on. And so sometimes for me that gets a little kind of a little verbose, right? Um, and sometimes it feels like the base R solution. Has this kind of simplicity to it because there's an awful lot of functions that are built into base which people just I think either forget about or, or don't know because they haven't they haven't learned through base they've learned through Tidyverse um, and so things like you know um, what's a good example plotting string handling there's some really like quite basic quite simple functions. Um, that allow you to achieve the the same things in less code and without that kind of need to library tidyverse, for example. Um, And there's there's something I think quite nice about um, laying out a a script um, which uses base in its entirety because these days as well, um, you can use uh, you know, the new base pipe, for example. So you can get code that looks like modern R code, looks like tidyverse in some ways, um, and is readable in that sense, this thing, then that thing, um, but without the need to be throwing uh, hundreds of uh, different tidyverse functions all over it. So really, for me, it's a readable thing. It's a simplicity thing. Um, it's a less verbose approach sometimes. Uh, and so that's what I think I mean when I say uh, elegance.
0: Yeah, I think base is, it, I feel like it is sort of underappreciated because I learned base for it. I think I read that book that you're talking about, actually, the big thick R one, and it had, it had a, it attached data frames in it. Do you remember that? Do you remember when people used to do that back in the day, attached a data frame?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good point. So I've written about this before. So this is where I show my blog, rostrum.blog, um, which is an R blog. Uh, has lots of uh, off-piste um, posts on it, and one of those actually, I, I look back at some of the code I wrote all that time ago, inspired uh, by that big, big book. And uh, yeah, it's full of things like attach, um, which for people who don't know means that rather than um, refer to your data frame uh, using kind of dollar symbols and square brackets to then you know take columns or filter on the basis of that named. Uh, object. Instead, you attach that object, and then every time you refer to a column, R goes, hmm, let me see if I can find that object in the environment. Oh, here it is. It's in this attached data frame. Now that's dangerous, because if you're not paying attention to your environment, you can have multiple objects that have the same column name in them, for example, and you might be referring to the wrong column. Uh, when you uh when you do your analysis so yeah that's uh something that um is not really recommended and i guess there's a couple of other things as well like um clearing your environment by using you know the rm function oh, yeah. to remove <laughs> everything which doesn't do what you think it does um so yeah no lots of, lots of things to um to kind of get wrong, I suppose, depending on which uh, which way you've been brought up when it comes to learning R. Uh, you know, the first thing you learn is often the thing that sticks with you for the rest of time. So there's something about like going back and learning base R or doing some data table or collapse or something else that means you change your way of thinking a little bit, I think. So I think it's healthy to kind of learn all these different approaches um, to, to prevent that.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I'm really interested in, in base actually. Um... So I mean I've learned a little. I mean I'm terrible, but I've I've learned some. Um, I learned a bit of Japanese in some night classes once, and I've done the Duolingo as well. So I know a little tiny bit of Japanese, and I did that partly because it is quite different. You know the way that I learned is something that that I knew had a kind of different grammar, and you know like it's not a, it's not like a European language. It's very strange, um, and I think. So R was my first program. Wait, really, I think I did learn some, I did try to write Space Invaders on my Amiga when I was like 13, I think, but uh, unsuccessfully. But it's the first language I ever got any good at. Um, and looking back on those, da- I mean, particularly attach, I just think by modern standards, it's just, with all respect to the people involved, it seems breathtakingly, and people would actually, as you say, you'd sometimes have data frames with you know similar columns, they would just attach things carefully in, in the correct order.
1: Yeah, so so one thing that I've um, I've really grown into is restarting R like every 10 seconds. Yeah. Because I feel like <laughs> you just you just should never trust what's in your environment. And so stuffing your environment full of data frames that you later forget about is not a good idea. There's also this idea of um, you know, when you set up RStudio, Studio, you should have it um, set up so that you don't save your environment you don't yeah. save the R data you don't save the history and all this kind of stuff but that's
0: default isn't it on a on a clean R studio install that is the default behavior saving
1: yes it is it is and I th- I'm not 100% sure why I, I think this is just related to sort of it's how it was always done um, and it might surprise people if we change the default now which I mean I don't know I mean I strongly
0: technicals. feel like they should change the default maybe they should do it over three years and have a big campaign or maybe they send a warning or something but I genuinely think the RStudio ID default behavior is, is really not wise. And I think yeah. that's a problem. Because the thing is, it won't affect people like me. Like, I always forget whenever I have a new computer. I install R, I forget that it's turned on, because of course I do. Then it starts playing up, and I'm like, oh, what's it doing? And then I turn it off. But a beginner yeah. who's going to have the most problems with that wouldn't do that. They would just go, oh, this is how R works. And then they... Do it for three years, and then finally someone taps them on the shoulder and says, oh, don't, that's a terrible idea, don't do that.
1: Yeah, I think I think the, the sort of turn it off and on again, sort of IT answer to everything in R is restart R. There's probably something in the environment. And so obviously that can mess with reproducibility. And if we're thinking about things like wrap, it's no good that you have certain things stored in your environment and someone else doesn't. Um, And it causes so many problems when it absolutely doesn't need to. So I'm with you. And also, um, just popped into my head, Jenny Bryan is someone who's quite well known uh, in the R community, uh, works at Posit. Um, And she's always threatened to um, come and burn down your computer if she sees (laughs) RM, et cetera. Um, And I feel like uh, if you aren't kind of, you know, restarting your environment every 10 seconds, I'll consider coming to burn your computer down as well. So just be aware of that. (laughs) Well, I'm safe
0: because my job's basically just writing emails these days. So, Um, okay, cool. Well, that's interesting. Well, we got had a couple of segues that I missed. Actually, Uh, let's segue into them now. Uh, So, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about that you mentioned um, is just kind of messing around. There's a fine tradition of just messing around. That I think probably non-technical people are not aware. I like to tell people who are not technical. So, for example, there was an MIT lab that very famously. They just didn't ask them to do any work, really. They just put them all in a room together and just came back a year later and then invented all this amazing stuff. Um, And you've done quite a lot of that. So just want to just talk about kind of what you think the value of that is.
1: Yeah, so I think initially um, in the civil service when I joined, I wasn't doing an awful lot of R-based analysis, but I had a sort of strong desire to improve my skills. Uh, So back then, I would start to write um some code to solve some small problem um or I would look at things like you know tidy Tuesday which is a way of like getting data sets and exploring them and and learning and as time has gone on um I sort of realized that actually you know I can I can actually do whatever I want Uh, and so that's kind of morphed into um doing something which sort of at its basis has like a A sort of learning need for me or like solves a problem but actually I can do it with kind of you know an interesting data set or to restrict myself like I'll only use base R to solve this problem that I otherwise would use tidyverse or something else Uh, and over time that means you know I've ended up acquiring all these extra skills that I wouldn't have had just from um, from work but equally it means I can try out stuff that I know might become useful in a work setting as well Um, and It's also over time morphed into just doing things for fun, as you mentioned. So silly things like I mentioned in the NHSR conference talk, writing a package that uses the R user der function, which is new in R version four, which allows you to kind of store or cache data for your package, using that to create like a cyber pet uh, for for your R console, right? So effectively you're storing a kind of blueprint of information, the age of the thing, its name, all that sort of stuff. And each time you start an r session you call it it calculates how much time has passed tells you whether it's become hungry you know this type of thing and then functions to kind of feed it or whatever so completely frivolous but also learning the process of using this r user function to be able to store information on the user's computer as you might need to do for various packages um, especially packages by like a query and api and you need to use a cache somewhere for example so it's started out as sort of learning And now it's much more about kind of having fun and accidentally learning uh, as a result.
0: Yeah, and I think there's two really important reasons why doing things like that are better for learning. The first one is because it's fun, which means that you do it. Um, Well, fun is just important generally, but yeah, it makes you more likely to get to the end because what you're doing is fun. But I think the other more important reason is that doing what you're describing is way easier than doing it in a production environment. That's the problem. I think I've seen a lot of projects, actually, where people are learning stuff in production. And that's really, really, really hard because you can't break anything. You've got loads of things that you have to think about. You've got loads of technical debt. You've got to think about all the data flow, you know, all this kind of stuff It's really, really, really hard. Um, But just making a pet, that's that's very self-contained as an exercise.
1: Yeah, for sure. And there's there's something I think brilliant about um, learning in the open as well. So as I say, this is this is on a this is on a um, an open website. This is rushroom.blog. Um and it's it's all built with um, Quarto, and there's there's a GitHub repo for it. So anyone can come along and say what you've done is ridiculous. Here's a better way of doing it. Great, thank you. Or um, or oh, here's another implementation that someone else has done. Maybe there's some learnings that you can gather from that. Uh, and then equally, um, it's quite a good space for um, showing off stuff that actually doesn't work. So I've got a number of posts where I sort of started something, realised that it doesn't work. <laughs> the um, and then I've been able to just sort of leave it at that and say, here's what I've learned from that process.
0: Yeah, so I'm going to go out on a limb here as well, actually. Um, there's there, Well, there's a culture just in just in... What would you call it? Um, software engineering, um, and I think in, in data science, where people do stuff like this, like at night time, and there's this idea that you have to, oh, you have to have all these side projects and you have to do all this open source stuff, and like, but that's not your job. Like your job is 37 and a half hours a week, but you've got all this other, you've got homework basically for your job. Um, I've seen that, you know, called out many times. Um, as I say, I think it's probably worse in software engineering than data science, but I think data science sometimes borrows some of the negative bits of. Um, So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I absolutely think that messing around is is part of your job. I've known loads of people who are really frightened to work on, well, even side projects. They're frightened to work on side projects for the business. They're working on something that's actually helpful for what's happening, but it's not the actual literal thing they're supposed to be working on right now. And they're really worried that a manager will walk behind. Well, in these day and age, in remote, you don't really have your manager walk behind you, but, you know, virtually walk behind you. Um... And I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't agree with that. I absolutely want people to be doing stuff like that in work time. And if you don't agree with me, then you can email the podcast and you can come on here and fight me about it.
1: I think think it's really important to say that you know, sat here, I can very easily say, "Oh, isn't it isn't it great to kind of learn in your spare time?" Which is what I've been doing here. When I don't, you know, I don't have any children, I don't have any pets. um, I'm working from home, like it's very easy for me to be able to just uh, at the end of the day, just go, oh. I was having fun just coding this other thing the other day. Oh, I'll just get back into it. That's totally fine for me. And that's not doable for so many people, which is why I think um, the attitude that you have is is absolutely the right one. Like I've learned learned more through doing this process than any courses I've done in my entire life. Uh, And a lot of it is just, yeah, just hacking around, making mistakes, learning new things, and doing it in a way where I have a clear kind of goal that I'm trying to get to mostly. and kind of working out how to get there. Um, whereas there's a lot of online courses where it's just, OK, now we're going to read a data set, and now we're going to make a plot, and so on. And it's there's, it's not exciting. It doesn't it doesn't drive you. Um, but that, for some reason, is the thing that gets considered to be stuff you can do during work. right? If, if it's a course, it's OK. But if you are trying to learn on your own, trying to learn something new through something that's a little more fun. That uh, seemingly is not the kind of done thing in a lot of organizations, I would say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My favorite meme of this, actually, is the test tutorial, which is always, here's how you test the function, 2 <laughs> plus 2 equals 4, that's it. Then it says, didn't go and write some tests. And you're like, well, okay, that, that doesn't feel like enough detail for me. Um, yeah, I think the thing is, I mean, I guess, I'm sure this is true in... in software engineering, or I don't know very much about software engineering. I'm sure it's true in data science, and I guess it's probably true in some other things as well. I think the thing for me is that if you can mess around for three hours, but that halves the time it, spend, it takes you to do a project that takes a whole week, I think that's the thing. this this obsession, isn't there? I think almost people want to measure the number of hours that you spend doing something. Like, oh, they spent four hours on a course, and then they did this, and then they're... and to me, that's a totally idiotic way of measuring things, because, you know, like... You can be a lot, they have this, and again, this is a toxic thing that I've read about from the world of software engineering. have this this notion of a 10 times engineer, now I don't promote this idea of a 10 times engineer. Someone that can do 10 times the work of of someone else, basically. Um, But although I don't subscribe to that, I do know from my own experience that if you know what you're doing, it's really, like, for example, I set up a Linux server back in the bad old days when I had to do such things. And it took me probably literally weeks, I think. It probably took me two weeks because I had no idea what I was doing. But there was no one else in the entire organization that could help me, so I did it myself. It took me absolutely ages. It was painful, but it was totally worth it because we had all this awesome technology and then we used it for ages. It was great. But if I'd known what I was doing, and, uh, well, and I should say that, actually, and, again, I'm in the privileged position of messing around in my spare time. I taught myself how to use Linux servers at night and then tried to set them up during the day. So, I mean, I did both. Um, if I'd known what I was doing, I probably could have done that in probably uh, maybe 2 hours. So, you know, there's a it, knowing what you're doing can shave a lot of time off lots of different data science tasks. And I think the failure to appreciate that I think can hold a lot of, you know, a lot of teams back.
1: There's there's something I'd like to add. You mentioned um the meme just now. The other one that comes to mind is the one that's like draw the rest of the owl. Oh yeah. <laughs> where you, you you get the two circles and then suddenly it's a fully formed owl. And it feels like that that is sometimes how um how these sorts of problems come across. It's like, okay, well, we need to get to this thing, but yeah, you just, if you just read in this perfectly formatted CSV and step through this like very short sequence of steps, then you will solve all your project needs. And it's just never like that. Um, And then also on top of that, uh, we can learn all this stuff, but like documenting it is really important. And that can mean an awful lot of different things. In this case, it might mean a blog post, for example, but even just sharing that sort of learning at say a coffee and coding session or something, it's sort of, you know, um, does a tree fall in the woods, etc. Like you've, you've got to record that stuff for yourself in future, but like why sit on that? Why hide that? Like we should be sharing that more often, I think.
0: And I think the other thing um, on a similar theme is, Git and GitHub, I think, or, or you almost can't mess around with Git and GitHub. Maybe you can, but I think it's more failure that drives Git and GitHub. Um, and we're doing. I'm, I'm working with a colleague here. Actually, to, we're going to do a session on why fa- why failing is good. Actually, next year, which I'm looking forward to. Um, so, in my previous role, my job. So I was the team leader, but I was also like the GitHub help desk. So very often at nine a.m the teams would ring and somebody would call me up and say, Oh, I don't know what I've done, Chris, I've got it And they were in a horrible mess. And again, that illustrates the point of so I could resolve their horrible mess in 30 seconds. I would just say type da 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 and they would type all this stuff and they're like, I don't know what I'm typing. And then they press return and they just magically fix itself. Whereas if if they hadn't had a GitHub help desk, they would have but you know, but they learned from that process. Whereas without a GitHub help desk, they would either just trash just had to just go, oh well I'm not going to learn anything. I'm just going to delete the delete it and start again. Uh, or I'm going to spend nine hours desperately trying to like pull my files back out of Git because that's the thing about Git. It's like many powerful tools. You know, it's like a chainsaw. When it works really well, it works really well. But when it goes wrong, it goes wrong in quite a spectacular fashion. Um, and I did that quite a lot in my old team. Yeah, it's uh, it's a really good
1: example. Uh, it's, it, it strikes me that when teaching people rap, especially okay, with R or Python or whatever it is they're going to be using, if something goes wrong, oh maybe it's because you forgot a comma or something. Whereas, forget if uh, if it goes wrong, yeah, it can be it can be spectacular. Um, and I know I'm guilty of having run prior kind of Git and GitHub training sessions where I'm like, oh, you simply just need to use just status. You know, add, commit, and put. That's basically it. That's all you need. And, of course, it's a, you said iceberg earlier. It's, it's, Git is an iceberg. Like, yeah, sure, you might only see the top bit and use only four or five commands every now and again, but actually there's a whole world underneath it. Um, and we probably need to get better at doing things like... Um, disaster recovery um, what happens if you do commit something you shouldn't have how do you deal with it not just technically but also communication right how do you tell the appropriate people um and make sure it doesn't happen again you know blame the process not the person kind of stuff huge thing for us to think about yeah
0: that's another lesson that you learn very rapidly isn't it i i myself i've never committed anything and i'm not confessing anything i'm not confessing a crime on the podcast <laughs> but i have definitely committed stuff and been like oh i kind of wish that wasn't there level um, and I have, yeah, several times had to like nuke things out of it. Um, yes, I was going to say something else, I forgot what it was now. Um, okay, cool. Well, we've had a good chat. Um, I think I want, we probably could keep going, but I don't want the podcast to get too long. Um, so thank you very much for coming on. Um, thank you very much for joining the team as well. As I say, um, you've been here for two weeks it's very, all very exciting and fun. Um, so thanks for listening, everybody. As I say, if you want to come on the podcast and fight me about whether your staff should be messing around in work time, email me at nhs.rcommunity.nhs.net. Well, you can email. You can, I'll mop for a scrap with anything, really. So if you think that anything that I don't think, then email and come on the podcast and fight me about it. Uh, Ditto, if you have comments or questions, then uh, do let me know. Um, I don't know who's going to edit this podcast, me or Tom. Everyone in our in our team is very, very busy at the moment, including me. Um, so actually, we may just not edit it until we're not busy anymore. Um but um we'll see. Yeah, well, yeah, Tom's Tom's just busy in general, I think. It's probably me. I'm just gonna thank myself and Tom and we'll we'll find out later. Um we'll be back. We don't have another one planned actually at the moment. Um I guess we do need to do a newscast though. Um oh no, we do have one. Sorry, I should have prepared this end a bit better. We do have one planned. It's gonna be um some people who um helped us with the R conference. So Pavel and Mary are gonna come on the podcast soon and talk about um the on conference which is a roaring success at nhsr nhspycom conference and they're going to be uh with somebody else uh that they worked with previously who knows all about um on conferences that i haven't met who's called kimberly um so i'm very much looking forward to that we probably will do a newscast in the future as well so look out for that and yes so thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time